Get updated with the hottest news in insurance, finance, and the newest innovation in InsureTech and FinTech in these difficult times. Hear it from one of the most known and respected voices in the industry, Dr. Robin Kiera, and his guest of today. This is Insurance and Finance Live from the headquarter of Digital Scouting in Hamburg, Germany. And today we have a very special guest, best-selling author, futuristic mind, banking and insurance expert, Brad King. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Robin. It's great to be back on and uh, great to be chatting with you as always. We always have a lot of fun when we do this, so... That's for sure, because also um, we have been chatting on your books on the future of banking, from breaking banks, banking 3.0, banking 4.0, and now you move to techno-socialism. Uh, I'm super curious to uh, listen to what you have to say, because, you know, I live in a country where we had the pleasure of a few socialistic experiments <laughs> over the years. So what is it all about and how could I um, explain it to like a 10-year-old child what techno-socialism is? Explain to a 10-year-old child. That's a good one. Um, well, what it is it, in its simplest form is using technology to create the optimal outcome for humanity as a species and the planet as a whole. Um, and in that respect, it takes a collective view of humanity, so all of humanity together, um, and looks at resource allocation to optimize for all humanity rather than um, for specific groups or segments. I think that's super interesting. But by the way, if everybody, anybody is asking him or herself why we have this little book thing down there on Brett's um, banner, uh, it's about to be getting sold. It's a, the most important date of the year, 21st of November, because it's my wife Katya's birthday oh, and the release of the book. Um, so um, make sure to order it from an American-based website. Why? Because I want to claim that I had a New York Times best-selling author here. And Brett is like this close before it Absolutely. so make sure to order a book there too all right thank you very much everybody for asking uh, for being here on the show i see you popping in from everywhere make sure to ask your question to brett don't be shy phil all right um yeah let's dive a little bit into the the hypothesis of um yeah organizing resources a little bit better i mean that's what socialists have claimed throughout the centuries not being super successful with it do you think with with technology it's going to be they have going to be, have a better run well so Uh, you know, artificial intelligence gives us the ability to automate a whole range of processes that essentially in the past have been very bureaucratic. And so we can make big government small through the application of artificial intelligence. We uh, feature a few smart cities where this is already taking place. For example, um, you know, Shenzhen in yep. uh, southern China, um, where I'm sure you, 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 you've been there, you know, it's an incredible city. But the The use of, you know, artificial intelligence there for, uh, for example, for um, road road and traffic management, um, you know, phenomenal reduction in costs, reduction in fatalities, reduction, um, you know, improvements in um, emergency vehicle response times. Um, they they don't use any patrol vehicles now for pulling people over okay. if you commit a uh, crime on the road, like speeding. The first time you do, you'll get a text message. The second time, you will uh, you'll get a fine. You know, um, hmm. it's all, all all automated. And so, um, by applying artificial 
artificial intelligence, um, you know, effectively at a city level, we can definitely see massive improvements in resource allocation. Energy um, is another mm. area. Yeah. You know, obviously solar and wind are now, you know, um, reaching about one-tenth of the price of coal uh, generation for electricity. Um, and so by retooling the energy systems that we have, um, obviously Germany has uh, been a, a leader in this, um, but, you know, we need to get better at battery storage and, yep. and, and, and climate, uh, uh, you know, infrastructure resilience and things as well. But all of these things, if you put them all together, you get... Um, you know, dramatically lower costs of delivering universal services to the citizens. And so um, it, you get to a point where uh, certainly by the end of the 2030s, we think it would be possible for most governments, if they go through this process of reform, to be able to provide housing, healthcare, education, um, you know, uh, food, all of the basic needs of society within the existing framework of, of the way the economy operates, but at a, at a cheaper rate yeah. than what it costs government to operate today. Super interesting that you talk about efficiencies. Um, me as a, you know, a German who loves to drive as fast as I can, as fast as, fast as a car can, um, on the Autobahn, I'm not, not sure if I'm too big a fan of this AI-rated uh, speed control, but I, I get the point. I get the point you try to bring it But, you know, I mean, soon we'll have autonomous vehicles, right? You know, so uh, the autonomous vehicles will be able to travel at higher speeds, we assume, because they'll be safer as well. So, yeah, let's not take the fun of it, out of it. But uh, <laughs> all, all kidding aside, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, old guy saying cigarettes are not bad. You know, I, I totally get it. <laughs> but especially if you look at efficiencies in um, education, I think we see this already now a little bit that you can uh, get courses and classes from around the world at uh, great prestigious universities or with great knowledge. So actually, almost all knowledge in the world is out there now for free. I think that's something. I think that's a democratization of opportunities that's unheard of, or even what the internet does. I mean, we're a small insurance and and and, and, and finance consulting company and a marketing agency. Even though I don't like consultants and this agency guys, you know, go on my nerves. I never go to their events. But the point is. We can serve a whole the world market as a small company. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's uh, and when you have a small niche and you know you can do business with all your friends all around the world, it's amazing. So, but if you think about you know if you leave my small world and have a bigger picture as you do in your new book, it's I think super super um, interesting to talk about the consequences of it. Um, Yeah, but I think Dvinka, Dvinka is asking an interesting question because that was popping my mind too. She said, uh, he or she, I'm sorry, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know, um, says, in practice, mostly techno-capitalism, not tech-socialism. What do you say to that? Well, so one of the challenges we ask in the book is, can capitalism fix the problems that it's created? And so when we talk about the problems that it's created, for example, one good example is pollution. You know, we have eight to 10 million people die annually around the world as a result of air, poor air quality. You, you, add, you can add water quality to that as, as an issue as well. Um, and so we have the technology to solve those problems today. You know, we could 
make cities essentially pollution free, all we had to do is commit the spend to it. And, you know, that's the big mm -hmm. question. Who's going to pay for it? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is where capitalism lets us down or has let us down in the past, is that it doesn't have the incentives necessarily to look after the best interests of the whole. It's really geared towards, you know, economic growth and looking after the, the, the shareholders and corporations, you know, within markets. Um, and so how do we incentivize things that are for the social good? Um, that are going to need to uh, be done in the future, you know, without it being, well, let's let's prove that the model can make money first. And so mm -hmm. I'll give you two examples. You know, we talk about four major uh, themes in terms of economic uncertainty that impact our future. Right? Pandemic is, is one. Uh, inequality, which is a massive problem in, in countries like the United States now. The emergence of artificial intelligence and its and the way it will change working practices and you know, techno unemployment and climate change. Right Now, if you look at just artificial intelligence uh, and, and techno unemployment and um, um, you know, climate change, um, there's some obvious issues there. Like <laughs> corporations are going to be in heavily incentivized to get rid of humans to automate their business because it will generate more returns. Yep. What responsibility do those corporations have to ensure that the people they let go of, um, you know, have some form of ongoing employment? Um, you know, for climate change, it we're already late in terms of responding to these issues because everyone yep. keeps saying, you know, um, who's going to pay for it? So then the question is, how do we get to a point, um, you know, at least from an economics perspective, where first and foremost, the economy is geared towards making sure everyone's happy and healthy? And then secondly, that uh, capitalism has uh, a, uh, a good environment for operating. But isn't it actually, does it need to be the socialist or the capitalist way? A lot sounds to me like the social democratic way, um, maybe without the bureaucratic monster it has, yeah. you know, founded over here, uh, like a, a combination of, of best of both worlds without all the bloodshed. Um, do you think that's possible? Do you think we can get yes. rid of all the, you know, political suppression and all of that and find a better way to allocate resources, you know, without the camps? Well, we use the term techno-socialism, you know, in the book title for fairly obvious reasons is that um, some will see it as contentious, but it yeah. will get a conversation going. Okay. Um, in terms of how we might otherwise describe this as sort of like optimal hu humanity, uh, mm, a techno-collectivism, you know. Okay. So, so these terms, uh, or, you know, if you say techno-humanist, people yeah. could confuse it with uh, techno-humanism, right? So, okay. um, so it was sort of tricky to find the right way to describe this. But ultimately, um, Dr. Richard Petty and I, um, you know, when we were discussing this, the, the theme of this, we wanted this to create um just conversations yeah you know, we wanted it to create so, awareness so you're not so you're more looking on the possibilities of technology the possibilities of society to distribute allocate in a smarter way and not necessarily as the old historic uh yes. um examples okay i get it it's I'm not a political talk. statement in any okay. way yeah. okay. no just i'm just i think it's super important to to understand because uh 
um, it, 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 it then opens a different way of, of the discussion. Um, again, I think it's a super valid discussion to discuss how can um, society allocate resources better? Uh, how can we avoid climate or you know manage climate change uh, and, and all these things? I think that's super valid, valid points here. Um, yeah, but the big question is how do we get there? Well, you know, this is this is a really this is at the heart of the book is, um, you know, there's two really interesting parts to this. One is, you know, the existing system we've got has created immense wealth. Yeah. But the wealth is not evenly distributed. Um, you know, if you look in the United States today, it's the worst inequality of any nation in any time throughout history. Um, the top 1% of Americans own more than the bottom 90%. Um, so whenever we see this level of inequality, typically it leads to revolution or, yeah. <laughs> or legislated wealth distribution. That's what history teaches us. Yeah. Um, so, but the other question is a philosophical one. What's the purpose of humanity? What are we doing here on the planet? And how should we best organize ourselves as a species to give our species, our grandchildren, um, you know, the planet itself, the best future possible? And if, um, you know, that is the, the um, intention or the purpose of humanity, which like people like Aristotle uh, stated, then, you know, we're not doing that. And part of that is because we we allow economics to frame a lot of decisions, but it's not a very good tool for deciding on things like policy. So, for example, you have a lot of wealth captured in billionaires around the world. The world's billionaires, uh, um, their wealth, uh, accumulated wealth, surpassed $10 trillion for the first time in 2020. Um, you have these extremely rich people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and so forth. You have Apple with $300 billion in cash reserves. All of this cash tied up with these entities or individuals is not very well distributed. It really, we're dependent on the good goodness of the hearts of these billionaires to distribute this wealth for the good of, um, you know, social causes. But that comes back to economics. What's the purpose of an economy? Is it to create GDP growth and, and profitability, or is it to care for the needs of the citizens? So, you know, that's a very real question. I, I totally get it. And if you would have referred to like aristocrats over here who, you know, um, we still have in some parts of the country, not in the Easter one. So shout out <laughs> that that was done very well. Um, because, and because then there's a the legitimacy of um, wealth. But all the people you cited, like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, didn't like at least for a little bit part of there was work for it and earn it and, you know, work hard for it. Of course, and there's no, I mean, um, you know, the, the fact that they, they've done so well, um, you know, is for many proof of the fact that the system works. But the, it gets to a certain point when you've yeah, got is. wealth that is captured. I mean, let's face it, um, you know, there was a great illustration of this the other day, which is if you landed on the Mayflower in the United States when the first pilgrims arrived and every hour you were paid $30,000 an hour from that point in, what is it, you know, 16 something 1712 <laughs> or whatever it was right um if you paid thirty thousand dollars an hour you know from that point you still wouldn't have the wealth that jeff bezos has as an example right and so um the 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 point is um I, it's not saying that bezos shouldn't have this wealth 
Um, but there's a certain point where, you know, even if Bezos was to spend $10 million a day, he would never run out of money, you know. And so is that an efficient use of capital, sitting in a bank accumulating more wealth, when it could be deployed for advancements in technology that, uh, you know, you know, yeah. um, and you know, Bill Gates is is obviously tried to emulate some of this, you know, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, because he feels you know somewhat the same as this. You know, money sitting in a bank is is extremely inefficient for yeah, society totally. in terms of its but, utilization. By the way, we also asked Bill Gates to come on our show, and he kindly declined. But I thought it really funny that he actually uh, answered. Uh, all kidding aside, I, I, I get your point about you know when capital sits in the bank that it actually doesn't work. But as a hypothesis, um, shouldn't we actually also then educate the masses how to manage wealth and money better? Because if you look at statistics over here, most money that sits in the bank and is not put to work is actually from the small saver. That's isn't it, it, shouldn't we actually like teach more more people that and um, how can technology work there? Yeah, I I think absolutely we should do that. Um, but let's jump forward to 2035. Okay, so 2035 is about the time we expect large-scale techno unemployment as a result of advancements we're making in automation. So in Germany, in most of Western Europe, um, in the United States, in Australia, where I'm from. We can expect somewhere between 40 to 50% of the existing jobs to be eliminated through um, uh, automation. Now, some new jobs will be created. So we have to train people to uh, take on these new jobs. Uh, you know, for example, right now, data science, um, you know, machine learning and so forth. Um, there are going to be obviously new jobs we don't even... Influencer. Right. Know what they are um, yeah, you know, that will be created. It's like But a disease. The, the change in work as a result of high levels of automation means that work is just not going to be as prominent a part of society in the second half of this century. Um, and so when you choose work in the future, you will choose work that you're passionate about, that you like to do, because ultimately when you have that extreme of unemployment as a result of automation, you can no longer rely on work to generate enough income to care for the needs of every citizen. So you need to think about things like universal basic income or universal uh, uh, you know, basic assets um, that help people live productively in a society where they can't work 80 hours a week or 40 hours a week to sustain a, um, you know, a standard of living. So this is a big shift economically in terms of um, uh, where we are. Um, the, the, so that, that's one area that we have to really figure out. And, uh, you know, it, what you're saying about the cash today, yep, that's yeah. true. But tomorrow, um, you know, if I don't have the ability to earn money, what's the responsibility of the economy then to make sure that I don't die because I starve? Yeah. And I think it's an interesting point. I mean, every nobody doubts that technology and the advancement in productivity, by the way, as Marx already um, you know, envisioned, will lead to large-scale unemployment or to shift in the structure of employment. Um, maybe there are also jobs we don't see yet in, in art and in science and in, in a lot of ways. Um, so the big question, I think, is how do we deal with it? Do we deal with it as a threat? as, oh my God, a lot of people will not have nothing to do? Or is it actually the entry of the promised land where people can, you know, 
even with limited musical skills as I do, you know, also pursue passions and enrich society culturally. Um, that's, I think, a super interesting point. So what do we need to do as society to not see it as a threat, but actually as an, as an opportunity? Well, you know, I mean, this is the goal of automation. The goal of automation is making it so you don't have to work. And that's the ultimate goal of artificial intelligence, right? And so um, having said that, um, when we look at UBI trials and so forth that have been um, in initiated around the world, that's not what happened. People don't sit sit on their couch every yeah. day surfing the internet. People get bored doing that. And so very quickly, they will either start their own businesses or they get involved in social causes, community causes and things yeah. like that because they don't have to worry about, you know, putting food on the table anymore. That concern is, is eliminated. And so they can do things that they're really passionate about. So how we phrase it in the book is when I ask you in 2040, what do you do? It's no longer about what you have to do to put food on the table. It's what you do that you're passionate about, what you do that you feel makes a contribution Red, to the world. I, I, I always thought that the question, what do you do with your job is, is like the most stupid question ever sure. because I'm like, I, what, I'm, I, what am I the proudest on? De delete the internet. I don't care. It's, it's really about my family. And uh, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's really funny when, yeah. when people also give an introduction about yourself and you're like, about who is he talking about? I just changed diapers. Exactly. Um, um, all right. Um, so can I just cover off Matthias's comment here about yeah. the billionaires investing in the market? Um, and so uh, that's that's obviously very true. Is that's a large portion of how they make their wealth. And for example, you know, a, a billion of uh, Bezos's billions is is his investments he made in, um, you know, other uh, uh, like um, you know other other companies. You know, for example. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, so anyway, um, getting back to the point is if we look at um, some of the biggest problems that we face in the world today, let's take carbon sequestration as a technical yeah. challenge. Um, you know, the, the level of investment in carbon sequestration technology, pulling carbon out of the air, is fractional compared to investment in other areas that are creating um, pollution or creating, um, you know, uh, um, you know, refuse and and so yeah. forth, right? As, as, so there needs to be just better balance in in those investment theses and strategies. The market is just not incentivized to do that. So part of what is changing right now is we have these ESG things coming into banking and insurance yeah. where corporations are held to a standard on, um, you know, their carbon uh, uh, usage, held to a standard in terms of sustainability and, and um, you know, reusability, yeah. recycling and so forth. We believe that that, particularly as the millennials and the Gen Zs and the alphas come into policy setting, that corporations will be um, judged as to whether they are good citizens or not. And so investments will change. You will no longer be supporting big banks, for example, that uh, fund uh, coal plants, you know, um, because yep, totally. um, you know, they, they will be seen as counterproductive for humanity. Especially especially when you see oh, you don't only have the movement of voluntary changes in the desire of the market, as you said, Gen Z's, Gen, Gen Y that are have different preferences, you know, customer preferences change, but actually 
you have also, you know, um, this certain technology gets penalized by certain CO2 certificates and all of that. Right. So I think that could be super interesting not to do big government funds because, I, you know, we look over here, we have like bureaucratic monsters currently uh, here. But really, it's, 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 it's unbelievable, uh, you know, and, and they don't work, actually, they don't function. Um, and and but if you see how the certificates work, CO two certificates, maybe that's also a move that should so be made for the car. Health, healthcare in the U.S. is a great example of yeah. this. Um, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, pays per capita twice what the uh, the OECD average yeah. is for healthcare, and their healthcare outcomes are poorer generally than say yeah. where you are in in uh, in Europe. Um, and so, how do you fix that? Well, forty percent of diagnoses in the U.S. healthcare system are wrong. So one in two chance of getting a poor diagnosis. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, so that's why you always ask for a second opinion. Um, 40% of the costs of the current healthcare system are administrative costs and processing built into the middle. Immediately, with artificial intelligence, we can eliminate most of those. We can improve diagnosis and we can reduce administrative costs. Then you've got application of gene therapy and these other technologies which, which will improve healthcare outcomes. By applying all of these different things, we can reduce the cost of healthcare by 70% in the yeah. United States and provide it to everyone for free. Yeah. But the market will not get us there on its own because there's a lots of pharma companies making huge amounts of money out of that current structure. So I totally we, agree with you. Yeah. By the way, it also applies to bureaucratic um, systems over here in different industries. So I totally understand that. Uh, I think never a bureaucracy abolished itself in throughout history. And, uh, as, and and we know we do restructuring and change projects um, where in insurance companies try to make them efficient or to introduce new uh, strategies uh, and tools from ESG to new sort of marketing. And what we see is um, that it no, that an organization almost never changes from itself. And that's a super interesting point. So it needs an impulse from outside. And this impulse can be voluntary and it can be not voluntary. But there's one point in your new book I uh, heard about, and I'm not sure if that's true, that you also talk about not only AI, about how to, to increase processes in insurance and finance, but also about topics like asteroid mining. What's ah. that all about? Is it true? And can you share a few ideas? So we talk about future industries that are likely to get investment and uh, be useful for humankind. Um, and so, for example, um, you know, there's one asteroid we profile in the book. I can't remember the name of it now because it's a, a long name with numbers attached to it, um, which um, would be the equivalent of 10 um, trillion times the current world economy in terms of its value, like wow. you know, one asteroid. Um, and so if you think about, um, you know, the need for battery storage to back up uh, renewable energy sources, you need to start thinking about lithium ion and all of these other battery technologies that require this. And we can mine, um, you know, the earth, but in doing so, we create pollution. We have a shortage of these potential, uh, um, you know, rare metals and so forth. Um, you know, China, for example, is a source of rare metals they may not necessarily share that with the rest of the world so you know it, there are complexities around us moving to technology-based um, you know planned utopian type societies in the future um, based on 
you know, resource uh, resources like this. So mining asteroids is one way that we are going to solve that problem. Um, and one asteroid alone could provide all of the rare metals we need for the next 50 years of humanity's existence. That would be a nice move. And uh, if there would be a startup, I would uh, surely consider investing it. And maybe I'll come the next Jeff Bezos. Uh, that would be fun. Just kidding. I, 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 don't, I, don't, even, <laughs> I don't even want, I think, uh, um, because I think there's a lot of attention attached with it or a lot of, uh, you know, negative point. Brett, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much, everybody here for asking your questions. I hope that you stopped your questions because you went to Barnes and Nobles or Amazon.com, the US side, please, and ordered Brett's new book. Super interesting uh, view on, on society, finance, insurance, um, and uh, make sure to, to get your copy on my wife's birthday. I will now order one physical hard copy version too. Just one point is we actually model four potential future histories for humanity. Okay. And techno-socialism is just one of them. And we look at the other three potential outcomes. And that's why, you know, we, we say techno-socialism is the optimal. But it's, it's for everyone to choose their own future, essentially, this book. Let's let's choose let's choose the the best one for all of us and especially a future where we can finally meet and greet in person again. I can't wait to bump into Brad at one future conference, old Absolutely. school in person. Have Absolutely. a drink and uh, get you get you a nice a nice a coffee or drink or dinner for you. And I'll sign your book. As well, you you will you will. All right, Brad. Thank you very much. Thank you very Thanks much out there. Don't uh, don't be a stranger. And next week will be next job. Oh, and here.